Man, so good to see all of you. It's so good to see Steve. Um, first, if we've never met, my name's Jay, and I'm a part of the team here. We're so, so glad you're here. And uh, Steve and I have been um, talking on the phone really regularly for the last three, four weeks or so. Uh, but this video is the first time I've actually seen him since Christmas Eve, and it's like, it's so good to, to see him. I'm sure you feel the same, and it's just been too long. And uh, Dana already said it, but I want to say it too. Thank you, seriously. I know personally that so many of you have been like really seriously in prayer for Steve and for Dana, uh, and um, that is not lost on us, and prayer is powerful. And this is the best I've heard him sound uh, in weeks, and so... It's, um, man, it's, I just feel really grateful for so many things and for that especially. And so like Dana said, um, we're, re- we're actually really hopeful Steve might be able to be here next Sunday, which would be super awesome. He'll be able to come up and share a little bit, uh, if not for sure in February. So we're really looking forward to seeing him. Um, if you're new to our church, like you're logging on for the first time today or you're out in the tent or you're in the room, a special welcome to you. Um, you came on uh, a really, really special Sunday. We, For the last couple of weeks, we've been in this short little series called Continuum, where we've been and where we're going. Because um, last week, uh, we, we collectively together as a church family um, entered into sort of a new chapter in the story of our church. And Dana and Steve have already mentioned it here, but um, sort of a leadership transition where Steve is stepping out of the lead pastor role and I'm uh, stepping in. First of all, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude and thanks for your affirmation and uh, so grateful that we are moving together as one church family in, in this journey. And I'm, I'm just so I'm ecstatic and thrilled about uh, where God might be taking us. Um, but also, you know, I just, I, it's, it's important uh, for me to say, last Sunday, we talked about where we've been. We actually went all the way back to like 1953 and the beginnings of Saratoga Avenue Baptist Church and this church plant from Los Altos and the birth of Westgate Church in 1993. Just so much of our history. We explored so much of our history. And today, Obviously, like exploring the future doesn't come with that much detail. But what I want to do is just sort of frame one way in which we might follow God into the days and months and years ahead. And this is something um, that sort of bubbled up to the surface for me last Sunday after the vote and after I had sort of settled in and I watched the Niners beat the Rams and Clay Thompson come back and play his first basketball game in two and a half years. And, you know, I was all wrapped up in that. And then I found myself lounging on the couch late at night. Kids are in bed. And I just thought, man, what a day, you know, what a day. It took a deep breath. And then I was confounded with this question like, okay, now, now what? <laughs> like, what, do I, what does this mean? What does it look like? And my heart and mind, very quickly, a few days after that, I started gravitating toward this story in the Gospels that has always been, for me, for many years now, a story that has just captivated me. And so I want to read the story to you, but before I do, I want to give you sort of a bit of the backdrop. Now, this story I'm about to read, it's found in actually like three other Gospels. I'm going to read Luke's version of the story. But before I read the story, you just need to know what's happening here. Jesus 
is like a really popular guy by this point in his earthly ministry. He's got large crowds following him. Tons of people want to see him do some of the miracles he's doing and the, the really like unique way in which he's teaching about God. So he's got tons of people following him. And one day, a religious leader in the town where he is, a man named Jairus, he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, my little girl who's 12 years old, she's dying. She's sick. She's deathly ill. And I think that you can help her. Will you come and help her? Will you heal her? Jesus says yes. So Jesus and his disciples and these massive crowds of people are walking all together to Jairus' house. And then in the midst of that story, something else happens. And that's the story I want to read to you. This is Luke chapter 8, verses 42 to 48. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. There's so many people, they're like crushing down, they're, they're like pushing down on him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. I'll talk more about that in a moment. She'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And she came up behind him, came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing up against you. But Jesus said, no, 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 someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet, at Jesus' feet. And in the presence of all the people, she said, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he, Jesus, said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Some of you know this story. It's, it's a powerful story, but it's also on the surface sort of a strange story. There's this woman, and we are told that she has suffered from bleeding for 12 years. That's the translation into the English in the NIV. Now, without getting into all of the details, here's what you really need to know. In the original context of this um, story, the fact that this woman suffered from bleeding for 12 years, what it meant was that she had a physical medical condition that would have deemed her in the Jewish culture of the day unclean. That was the official title. In other words, this was an unclean woman. And I, by unclean, I, that's not a word I'm making up to describe her. That was actually an official term in the first century ancient world, and in particular, the first century Jewish world. Remember, Judaism is a socio-religious uh, socio reality. And what that means is the people, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus did not, they didn't just compartmentalize their religious beliefs in one corner and then their social lives in another. The two were melded together. The Jewish people, their religious beliefs had significant impact on the way they lived socially with one another. What that means is, if a person in the first century Jewish world had a physical condition that was considered unclean, then that person if they were religiously, ceremonially considered unclean, and this, would have, this woman would have been because of this condition she had, what that would have meant was that socially, that person would be ostracized to the outside of society. 
An unclean person could not live and function as a normal functioning member of society. She very well lived outside of the city walls. She very well lived in complete isolation and ostracization. She had no connection with her family or her friends for at least 12 years because that's how long she has suffered this condition. These are the things we have to know about this woman. When the story tells us this woman was suffering from bleeding for 12 years, this is not just a casual, light, easy, run-of-the-mill situation for her. Her entire life, 12 years previously, would have been upended. She would have lost all of her relationships. She would have lost her family, her friends, her religious community. She would have lost society as a whole. She literally would have lost her home and any sort of work she may have had. She would have had to have lived as a beggar on the outside looking in. That's this woman. And in fact, legally speaking at the time of Jesus, an unclean person like this woman if and when she journeyed through crowds of people, like in the city, she would have legally have had to vocally proclaim, unclean, unclean. The reason being, in Jewish tradition, if you touched an unclean person, you, by default, became ceremonially unclean. And so this woman, think about this, you guys, for 12 years, it would have been illegal for her, literally against the law, to have physical touch with another person. And this woman has been completely pushed out to the margins. And yet the story tells us this woman risks life and limb to do what? To touch the edge of Jesus's cloak. Why does she do this? Because for an unclean person, to knife through a large crowd, inevitably she would have bumped up, physically bumped up against the crowd, yes? That is illegal. If she's caught, the highest form of punishment for such a thing would have been death. This woman literally risks her life to knife through a massive crowd to get to Jesus to do this strange thing, touch the edge of his cloak. Why? Why the edge of his cloak? At the time of Jesus, when this story is taking place, there were all of these um, what are called messianic prophecies. Some of you have heard that phrase before. Messianic prophecies are prophecies, prophetic tellings of what it might look like when the Messiah, which is this fancy word meaning savior, like the chosen one, the anointed one, when God would send the one he has chosen to bring healing and restoration and renewal to all things, when God sends that person, here's what it might look like. Those are messianic prophecies. And one of the most popular messianic prophecies at the time of Jesus was Malachi chapter four, verse two. Let me read it to you. It says this, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. With healing in its wings. Now, the word for wings, this is a metaphor, obviously, but it's a messianic prophecy, meaning 
It's a metaphor saying like the son of righteousness is a metaphor for the chosen one God will send to bring healing and renewal and restoration to all things and to all people, to bring salvation. It's a metaphor for the Messiah. And the the verse says that when that Messiah comes, there will be healing in its wings, right? Okay, pay attention to that. Remember that, healing in its wings. At the time of Jesus, Jewish men, and in particular Jewish rabbis like Jesus, he was a rabbi, they would have worn kind of the long flowing robes that you're familiar with in the old paintings of Jesus. But over those long flowing garments, they would have also had over their shoulders the traditional Jewish prayer shawl. You guys are familiar with this, yes? Some of you. A traditional Jewish prayer shawl looks a little bit like this. And so over the long flowing robes, Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi and as a Jewish man, would have worn a prayer shawl like this. This is the cloak that we are reading about in Luke chapter 8. When it says that this woman reaches out and touches the edge of his cloak, that word is describing the prayer shawl. Now Jewish men and rabbis in particular, when they prayed, how would they pray? They would take their prayer shawl traditionally and they would lift the prayer shawl up like this and over their heads to pray as a sign of reverence toward God that I cannot look upon a holy God because I'm a sinner. Now, when I lift my prayer shawl like this, what does the prayer shawl look like to you? Wings, that's right. In fact, the edges of the prayer shawl, these two edges that look like wings, in the Hebrew is the word kanaf. And so actually, the edge of the cloak or the edge of the prayer shawl is the Hebrew word kanaf. This woman reaches through the crowd and reaches out to touch the kanaf of Jesus' prayer shawl. The word kanaf is also translated into the Hebrew word wings. So the the Messianic prophecy of Malachi 4.2 says when the Messiah comes, there will be healing in his kanaf. This woman cuts through the crowd, risks life and limb to do what? To touch the kanaf, the edges, or the wings of Jesus' cloak. Why does she do this? Because she believes Jesus is the Messiah. She believes that after 12 years of disappointment, 12 years of pain, 12 years of loneliness, 12 years of isolation, she believes that this man has healing in his wings. She believes it so much that she is willing to risk her life to find healing in the kanaf or the wings of the Messiah. But this woman doesn't just believe. The story also tells us that she reaches out and she touches the kanaf, right? That word in the original language of the story, touch, is the Greek word hapto. And the Greek word hapto, in the Greek, there are are a couple of words that you could translate touch. And the Greek word hapto is not a word meaning like a light, gentle glance or graze. Hapto is a word that means grasp for, grab, cling to. 
Hopto can also be translated to set on fire. Think about like if you're camping and you want to start a fire and you don't have a match, what do you have to do? You have to like really intensely create pressure, yes? This is a word of desperation. She doesn't just knife through the crowd and then like gently kind of touch the edge of Jesus's prayer shawl, no. She knifes through the crowd because she believes there is healing in his wings And when she finally gets within arm's length, she grabs for it. She clings to it. It's like fire in her bones reaching out for healing. She's desperate. This woman doesn't just believe Jesus can heal her. She is desperate for his healing. Make sense? What I've come to believe is that Christian faith looks like this. It looks like desperate belief, and it looks like both together. Let me explain why. First, if you are desperate, but you lack belief, it leads to despair. If you are desperate for change, but you do not actually believe that it is possible, that will inevitably lead you to despair. Some of us can relate to this. The last two years, some of us, especially the last two years, we have felt desperate for change, but we've doubted that change is possible, and we find ourselves in despair. We find ourselves anxious and uncertain. And I would encourage you, maybe if you are feeling desperate, maybe if you are feeling despair, maybe the answer isn't to continue striving for for the same old solutions that disappoint. Maybe the answer is to begin believing again, to begin rehabituating ourselves to the reality that God is capable and that he is faithful. Maybe we find ourselves desperate for change, but lacking belief. And if you lack belief, that is okay. I have been with you. But let me remind you of the words of that father in Mark's gospel who asked Jesus to heal his demon-possessed son. What did he say to Jesus? Mark 9, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. If you are desperate, but you lack belief and you find yourself in despair, Do not fret. Many followers of Jesus have been right where you are, and God does not push you away because you are struggling to believe. All you need do is go to him the way this father went to Jesus and say, God, I believe. Help me believe. What does that mean? Belief in God in many ways begins when we recognize, admit, and surrender our unbelief to him. And it begins often as we live out of what we say we believe in real time and in real ways. Sometimes you can act your way toward believing. In other words, maybe you don't actually quite believe it, but as an act of prayer, you live your life as if that which seems impossible is possible. And often you will discover that that thing that is impossible in your mind becomes possible as your belief expands. Dallas Willard put it this way, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it or even when we believe that we believe it. 
We believe something when we act as if it were true. So maybe you are in despair because you're desperate, but you lack belief. Maybe what you need is to pray that prayer, God, I believe, help my unbelief. But maybe, maybe you do believe. Maybe you believe that God can change things, that there are better days ahead, but maybe what you lack desperation. Because belief minus desperation leads to stagnation. You can believe it all you want intellectually in your mind, but if you do not embody the belief in your actual body and bones, in your deep longing for the things of God, then you very likely feel stuck, like progress is elusive. And you wonder why. It's like, I know God could do this stuff, but I just wonder why it's not happening. And maybe, maybe it is because you're not desperate. Maybe it is because you have coupled belief with comfort or belief with ease. And maybe in that situation, the answer isn't to increase your output, to do more of the same in order to just get more of the same, but maybe the answer is to ask God by his spirit to deepen your desperation for him and the things of his kingdom. I love Psalm 63, verse one, where the psalmist writes this, you, God, are my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Is this psalm indicative of your life? Do you earnestly seek God? Are you thirsty for God? Is your whole being longing for God? in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have come to believe that desperation for God often begins when we recognize the things that are not of God as dry and parched land. But the reality is many of us live life as if the things that are not of God can satisfy our thirst the way God can. Many of us orient our lives, our priorities, our time, our finances, our energy, the things we think about, the things we do, the stuff that takes precedent and priority on our calendars. We give those places of honor in our lives to the things of the world that we think will satisfy us in ways that they never will. Desperation for God begins when you recognize all that is not of God as dry and parched land. When you recognize that it will never satisfy the way God can satisfy. And when we come to that place, the natural response is desperation for God and the things of God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. What would happen if we as individual followers of Jesus and we collectively as a church family, as we trek into the future, what would happen if we asked God by his spirit to form us every day into a community of belief and desperation? I mean, what is possible? What might God do if we fell on our knees together every day moving forward and ask God, God, help me believe. I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And we ask God, God, you are the only one who can satisfy, so come and satisfy. All other things are dry and parched land. All we have is you. With our whole beings, we long for you. And there are some things about our church community that are not gonna change and will not change. We are daily asking God to form us into the sorts of people who learn the way of Jesus and live the way of Jesus. Into the sorts of people who love God deeply, love one another deeply, and love our neighbors, love our world sacrificially. That is what we are asking God to do. But as we ask, what could happen if we believed that God could do more than we could ask or imagine? What would happen if we desperately sought the things of God that he might do in and through us, again, more than we could ever possibly ask or imagine? I mean, what happened in this story? Luke 8, verses 47 to 48, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. And this is key, in the presence of all the people, all the people who had ostracized her, all the people who had pushed her out to the margins of society, all the people who had known that this was an unclean woman that you could not get near. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched Jesus and how she had been instantly healed. No doubt there, she told everyone because I believe he's the Messiah. That's why I did it. And I was healed. And then he, Jesus, said to her, daughter, he calls her daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. It is safe to assume that no one has called this woman daughter for 12 years. It is safe to assume that no one has said the words, the Hebrew word shalom, which would have been a, a Um, customary greeting at the time to this woman, the word peace. That's what the word shalom means. It's safe to assume that no one had said those words to her in 12 years. And yet, in one fell swoop, Jesus gives to her not just physical healing, but he calls her daughter in the presence of all who had declared she is not a daughter. And he tells her, go in peace, your faith has healed you in the presence of all the people who had not had peace with this ostracized woman. Jesus, in one moment, 
brings physical healing, but also emotional healing, and also communal healing. In one moment, Jesus heals this woman and in some ways heals that community and brings restoration and reconciliation and unity and oneness because this woman believed and she was desperate. What might God do if we became a community of belief and desperation? How might God bring renewal and healing and reconciliation and unity and restoration if we became a community of belief and desperation. Tomorrow, our, um, our nation will remember the ministry and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. And Dr. King, obviously, he wasn't a perfect person. He was flawed and he had his own stuff that he wrestled with. But what we celebrate is how his life embodied the sort of belief and desperation I'm talking about. Dr. King had an unrelenting belief that God could lead us to better days ahead. He believed it with every fiber of his being, and he was desperate for it. I mean, he put he literally would put his life on the line to partner with God and to seek God and to seek God's power in bringing about those better days ahead. There's a beautiful quote from Dr. King that I love. He said this, and I think it's a great reminder for us as we sort of continue on in worship now this morning. He says, seek God and discover him and make him, make God a power in your life. Without him, all of our efforts turn to ashes and our sunrises into darkest nights. But with him, we are able to rise, I love this line, from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. If we could become every day by the power of God's spirit moving in and through us, a community of belief and desperation, we might embody and express to the world how we can move from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. I'm gonna ask Chris and the band to come back up and they're gonna lead us in a couple of songs and we're gonna respond here in worship. And we're gonna sing this song together in a moment, this song called King of Kings. I want to read some of the lyrics of this song to you because I think it expresses in many ways the anchor, the sort of ballast upon which we place our belief and our desperation. That no matter how bad things get in your own life or in the world or in society or culture at large, we have belief and we can desperately seek God to lead us to better days because our faith is not built on something we hope will happen. Our faith is built on something that has happened and will happen again. What are those things? The song that we're about to sing, it tells us that in the darkness we were waiting. We can relate to that, even on a personal level, right? The darkness we were waiting without hope and without life until... 
from heaven, Jesus came running with mercy in his eyes. And then he lives, teaches, and he dies on the cross to defeat death, to pay the penalty for our sins. And on resurrection morning, that morning he rose and all of heaven held its breath until the stone covering the tomb was moved for good because the Lamb of God had conquered death and sin. And then what happens? The church of Christ is born and the Spirit of God lights the flame. Now the gospel, the good news that Christ has come, that he is coming again, that good news, the gospel, it will not kneel, it will not faint, at any site of trouble or calamity or uncertainty or anxiety or fear or shame or guilt that may come our way. Jesus has come, he is coming again, and no matter who we think runs the show, the undeniable reality is that there is only one king of the universe and his name is Jesus, and that will not change. And what that means for us is that we place our hope in that king. Even when it is hard to believe, we live and move as a community of belief. And when it is hard to believe, we simply surrender the unbelief and we tell God, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And we desperately seek the things of God. We watch as he leads us to places we could not have led ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand and sing together.